All right, hello and welcome everyone to another Chat and Learn here with Power to Fly. My name is Mariella Marie and I'm super, super excited to roll into this next hour with you. I had a chance to speak with our guest speaker offline who's calling from Hawaii um, and she is gonna drop so much knowledge here. So I don't wanna waste too much time, but I do wanna go over some quick housekeeping rules so that people feel comfortable and confident for this next hour. Um, I've muted everyone upon entrance. So uh, that's just to avoid background noise, but feel free to take yourselves off of mute whenever you feel called to do so or write in the chat box. We would love to hear from you. Um, this is a very important conversation. So, you know, the more that we are sharing our voice and our perspective, uh, the better I think that we can we can uh, find solutions uh, to these big problems that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, with that said, if you do come off mute, you will be featured in our live recording. Um, and if you want to keep yourself anonymous, if you have any sensitive information, uh, you can write me privately. You can find me uh, in the chat box under Mariella Marie, and then you can write me privately and I'll flag that to our guest speaker. Um, the last thing that I'll say is that this is being recorded. So um, you can rewatch this video on Power to Fly later. So I invite you to be present with us for this next hour. Uh, and we'd love for you to follow us on socials so that you can keep up with all the great chats we've got coming up. Uh, without further ado, um, I'm getting so excited here that I skipped the first slide, but I wanna pass the mic to our guest speaker, Kamal. Uh, let us know a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to learn about Power to Fly and what you're excited to share with us today. Oh, thanks so much, Mariella. Thank you for having me. And we're really, really excited. Um, I and just the whole Terra team, we're so excited to do this. We love the work you're doing at Power to Fly. Uh, it feels especially like important and meaningful, uh, especially in this time. So thanks so much for having, having me here. Um, so yeah, that's my official bio, but I think we should just like jump into the, the, chat, the, the slides because I've got a little bit of my story and I think it's a little bit more interesting the way I talk about it in the slides. So again, you know, I'm, I'm Kamal Kapadia. I'm co-founder of Terra.do, which is a online climate change school and community. We are a rel relatively new organization. Uh, we got started about a year ago. Uh, Mariela, next slide, please. So this is how I got started in this work. Um, this is a picture of me, uh, and this is gonna tell you a little bit about how old I am, but this is from the late 1990s. And I was working for a company in India called Selco. And what we did was rural electrification in off-grid communities with solar energy. So at that time we worked in three countries, India, Sri Lanka, and Vietnam. And this is a picture of me with a friend of mine and a couple of technicians and a solar panel that I actually installed. Um, now that I, I got into this work and you know, obviously people associate solar power now with like a, a big way of solving climate change. But the reason I got into this work is because I grew up in a country where you know inequity was really staring you in the face and I was, when I first learned that like there were millions of people in, in my, I grew up in a city. And when I first learned that there were millions of people who didn't have access to electricity, that kind of really affected me. And I thought, oh, I, I wanna work on this problem. I wanna figure out a way to, to do something about this. And that's kind, of, I got, I, that's kind of how I got into this line of work. So it was really very much about sort of how do we serve people? And then also it turns out we can sort of serve people and do something for the environment at the same time. We've got these kinds of solutions, you know, this panel right here sort of captures that. And so, um, you know, a lot of, it's important to sort of always keep that in mind. I think that we can solve, we should be direct, you know, simultaneously solving kind of our big challenges around equity justice while also addressing environmental issues. Um, so sorry, can we move to the next slide? Next slide, Mariela, thank you. So I'm um, sorry, just one up. So I kind of continued this interest in 
um, you know, livelihoods, work, et cetera. Because when I was working for the solar company, we were very, we were thinking very actively about how does electricity enable kind of uh, economic development in rural areas. And then when I, I went off to grad school at UC Berkeley after doing this work for three years, um, I continued to stay very interested in this question of work. And so on the left is a, a study I had worked on. It's a very early study on um, how, you know, how many jobs can renewable, the renewables industry actually generate. And even for my PhD work, I continued to focus on livelihoods in a very different context in Sri Lankan villages after a natural disaster and how do we actually uh, build, build, you know, better livelihoods, help people recover and kind of come out of poverty after disaster. So this focus on jobs, livelihoods has kind of been consistent as I have, you know, continued to have an interest in climate and climate action and environmental action. Um, next slide, please. So of course, that brings us to Terra.do, and it's kind of almost a natural progression of all this work I've done over 20 years, because at, at Terra, the, the, the big picture context is that in order to solve this climate crisis, we really need like 100 million people working on this solution in one way or another. It's, it's not enough for like a few people with specialized degrees to be working on it. We need everybody in all kinds of professions really taking on this challenge. So that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people transition into climate work. And we see education as a key way of doing that, but by no means the only way. Um, so next slide, please. So I'm going to again just zoom out for a little while and uh, and just give some big picture context again before diving into what it is that we do at Terra. So I want to just talk a little bit about this world of green jobs. Um, next slide, please. So uh, uh, you know I'm kind of like hand waving and ignoring the fact that climate change effect itself can have a negative effect on jobs. I mean that's kind of a, a, a big a something to just keep in mind that. Uh, you know, with sort of sea level rise, you know, disasters, et cetera, that itself can be a negative impact on people's capacity to make a living. However, climate action, which is kind of what we're all about and why we're all here, um, has a net positive effect on jobs creations. There's now like hundreds of studies on this, you know, the numbers might be a little bit all over the place, but everybody agrees that climate action has a net positive effect on job. Of course, a keyword here is net. So, you know, we are talking about transitions because there's entire sectors where we're going to lose jobs like the fossil fuel industry. And there's new sectors where there's going to be new types of jobs like clean energy industry. So how do we enable these transitions? That's going to be like a key issue moving forward all around the world. Next slide, please. Um, and so I'm just going to spend a minute on this interesting study that came out. Uh, it was done last year by the International Labor Organization, and they did this amazing piece of work, and they went sort of deep in 32 different countries, and they've tried to really figure out what are the skills that we need for a greener future, and they've kind of zoomed out and taken a global view, and they've also kind of created a model uh, trying to sort of generate some numbers around this as well. And this is just a, a list of the various sectors, um, some of the sectors in which we're going to see these transitions playing out. So they're really kind of all over the place and even include things like you may not think about like telecommunications, tourism and hospitality, etc. Next slide, please. Um, this is a bit of a messy graph. So I'm just going to spend just a minute kind of highlighting the key takeaways from this. It's from this study. And what this graph represents is uh, they've kind of taken they've done a scenario where they've looked at what is it going to take to get to two degrees centigrade, which actually now is not even considered the safe temperature, global average temperature for us to get to. The 
intergovernmental panel on climate change, which is kind of the authoritative scientific body on this, says we really need to get to 1.5 C of warming. We're already at 1.1 C of warming. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, we really are in a crisis. We really do need to be acting and acting now. Um, but this is a based on a scenario of getting to say two degrees C. And what, the, what they've done here is they've listed all the different job types and on the left, the, the, the stuff that's kind of black and gray is showing job losses and what's in the blue and light blue is showing job gains. And um, maybe for many of you, you might be in the categories that are kind of right in the middle there, business and administration, associates, science and engineering. That might be sort of where many, many people here are kind of you know, represented. And as you can see, uh, there's big transitions, like there's a there's a lot of losses, but there's also a lot of gains. So again, we're talking about these transitions and, and facilitating these transitions. Um, next slide, please. So for me, the biggest takeaway, and I feel like this kind of really situates what we're doing at Terra, which is only, they're saying in the overall, only 2% of all the global jobs in the world, because there's like millions of jobs, are at risk of disruption. So that provides some context as well, but the creation of over a hundred million jobs is conditional on training. And this is exactly, again, back to this issue of transitioning people. So conditional on training. Um, next slide, please. So that brings us back to Terra. And you know, this is, this is why we decided to start as a school because we really see training as, as a key component of helping people make this transition. Um, next slide, please. Um, and so I'm just going to talk a little bit about our core program. It's actually like a 12 week, we call it a climate boot camp. And the goal is very much about helping people figure out this transition into climate work. So um, right now, the, our, our, our fellows, we call them, we call all our students fellows, are, um, we're, we just launched our third cohort. Uh, we have, uh, oh, this is actually, sorry, a slightly, um, uh, uh, this is actually from the last cohort. We now have 140. 30 fellows from 20 countries. Um, we are actually at, uh, yeah, we're sort of, yeah, we're kind of growing. Each time we seem to add like more countries to each of our cohorts, come from a really wide range of professional backgrounds, everything from like marketing to tech to, um, we have a teacher, we have some farmers, we have some people from oil and gas industry. We have an amazing diversity of professional backgrounds represented. All are looking to do some kind of climate work. And this doesn't necessarily mean leaving their jobs, but it, 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 some people actually want to find new jobs, but some people just want to figure out what they can do in their existing jobs, in their existing organizations. So we have, again, a diverse range of like interests as well. And sort of, we think of climate work quite broadly in this sense. And there's a lot of stuff we do in the program we have we really focus on community we think community is very very important you know it's it's a big challenge climate change and it's it's not something it's hard to figure this out on your own so it's really good to have community um, but we have classes we have a whole mentorship program we provide a lot of career support and again that that's that last point there it says community um, next slide please so the other thing we're doing is we, you know, the core program is just like the start of it. We really want to add more courses. So we, uh, we partner with experts, uh, anybody who's like interested, who has some knowledge in this area, you absolutely don't need to be at a university to teach this stuff. 
Um, in fact, uh, you know, we, we had, we, the second course we launched was on the new hydrogen economy. And it was actually co-created by one of the graduates of our first cohort who himself is an entrepreneur and decided to start a company in this space. And he found an expert, a professional expert, and they partnered up and they, they created this course together. So um, we, and we're going to be running it now a second time as well, starting in January. So we, we, it went really well. And so, but we really want to expand the courses we have. We've got one coming up on green buildings. We've got another one coming up on climate finance. We've got, we've got a whole bunch in the works and we're really looking for people to come and create these courses with us. So if, if you work in this area already, please just come to our website and, and get in touch and we'll be really happy to work with you. Next slide, please. And of course, I mentioned the career support. We just ran the world's first online climate jobs fair. It was really amazing. We had like 600 people turn up. We had like 30 companies, 150 positions. Uh, it went really well. Uh, we plan to do this often. Um, so yeah, keep an eye and hopefully we'll see you at one of our jobs fairs if this is something of interest to you. Next slide, please. Wow. Okay. So what a yes. beautiful introduction. Uh, I already have a lot of questions uh, that I would not, that I want to ask you. So I'm going to definitely connect with you offline. Uh, with that said, uh, we our community has submitted some great questions offline here. Um, we're going to take them one by one and just use the rest of this um, the time that we have together to dive in as deep as we want. If you're joining us live, feel free to write in the chat box or come off of mute if if you see your question presented on the screen or if it's not your question and you still you know want to add your two cents or or have some follow-up responses, uh, we would love to hear from you. Um, so let's start with this first question here, Kamal. Can we actually still help solve climate change or is it too late? So the answer is definitely yes, we can help solve climate change. It is not too late. And in fact, this exact question was a topic of a lot of sort of Twitter discussion just a couple of weeks ago, because there was a new paper that came out in an academic journal that said, oh, it's, it's probably too late. And then a lot of other scientists actually jumped on it and completely took it apart and said, this is totally false. It's absolutely not too late. So, you know, every single molecule of CO2 that we're not putting or, or any greenhouse gas that we're not putting in the atmosphere means that much less climate change and it buys us that much more time as well to sort of, you know, get more technologies online and kind of, you know, address this problem. So every single bit helps. Like it's, it's totally false to say that it's too late. I just want to give a little bit of context and sort of explain why people, some people think it's too late. Um, it has to do with these two big things going on with climate change. And one of them is called tipping points and the other one is called feedbacks. And so, you know, the scientists have identified these nine tipping points, which are these big systems that once they flip over, uh, can kind of create catastrophic catastrophic change and we it's it's almost impossible to reverse so at that point if we reach the tipping point um even if we start to really bring down emissions we've we've set something in process that's going to be impossible to reverse and for example one of them has to do with the permafrost so the permafrost is this kind of huge region of frozen mud up in the in, in the sort of Arctic areas. And um, it, it contains a very large amount of methane, which is trapped. Now methane is an extremely potent greenhouse gas, but as we are warming the planet, this permafrost is beginning to melt. And so there's this fear of sort of catastrophic, reaching a point where we can no longer prevent the methane from coming out into the atmosphere. And then that creates what they call a negative, uh, uh, sorry, a feedback cycle where the, um, then you've got more methane, so you've got more warming, and then you've, you're melting even more permafrost. And so so it's this kind of cycle. So those are the kinds of things that scientists kind of 
worry about a lot is like hitting these tipping points and um but we, we we're not there yet there's two tipping points where we feel like oh you know uh, we might be getting close but we are not at the tipping we haven't hit these tipping points yet so it's absolutely not too late Great, thank you so much for debunking that myth. And I know we have some more myths probably to debunk. I know someone else had a question coming up soon. So um, it's, it's uh, I would like to hope that it's not too late. Even if folks are, are, you know, putting their weight on that side of the argument, it's like, you know, well, you know, we have to think about our nieces and our children and the younger folks that are coming after us. So we can't give up, even if you think it's too late, you know, there are little things that we can do. Um, which brings us to this next question. Do the small things we do in the day-to-day -day actually have an impact on the bigger future? So the answer again is absolutely yes, okay? And, and, and the reason I say this is for two reasons. One is that, um, you know, uh, so one is that, um, you know, a million small things easily add up, right? So if everybody's doing a small thing, it really adds up to a big impact. But the other thing is, I feel even people who you sort of might be sitting back and looking at and thinking, oh, they're doing sort of big things, they all started small. They all started somewhere, most likely in their personal lives and in their local communities and contexts. So nobody started at some like big scale. Everybody got their start just looking out of their window or like just doing something where they had some control and power. So your small thing might turn into a very big thing some years down the line. You never know where it might lead. So absolutely start with the small things. I think about where I got started and I was in, uh, you know, in a high school student in India. And the thing that really bothered me when I would look out of my window, there was a huge pile of garbage that used to be dumped on the street. So back then the city government wasn't doing a very good job at like clearing the garbage and there'd be this huge pile of garbage and there would be children kind of picking out like the recyclables from this, you know, very poor children. And that just struck me as like a problem. I was like, okay, this is a problem. And I was kind of curious about it. And luckily my mother had a friend an auntie who was kind of interested in this and she was interested in separation of waste and vermiculture, composting, et cetera. So I started just doing a little bit of work with her and just like, you know, once one little like one building like where people live basically. And that's literally how I got started. Like it was, you know, who did I know? Where could I do a little bit of work? And that's kind of how I got started. And that was a pretty small thing. You know, I was high schooler and that was how I got started. And now I'm running online global climate school. So um, yes, absolutely start. We all have to start in a place where we feel like we have some power and that's going to be, you know, probably in our home, in our community, et cetera. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would love to echo that sentiment as well. I mean, it's great to see things with your eyes or to be, you know, impacted by, you know, the, the disaster that we are collectively creating and then making a choice. Uh, my partner is a cook and we've recently moved to Patagonia to try to bring more sustainability, you know, local food, um, just awareness and consciousness of, you know, kids unfortunately a lot of kids these days don't know where the carrot comes from or where the apple comes from and there's just been such a a gap of information you know you get a square of meat on your plate but where where does that come from and what are the consequences because you know because of industrialization for example not to go too deep in it uh, we can totally philosophize I'm sure you and I later on another call um but you know as soon as we we can, we could we started to compost which we you know we're starting to ask the community do they compost and if not why and then realizing that certain laws are still moving pretty slowly and 
And I just think that when you start to talk about it and when you start to activate in your own, in your own home um, with this genuine, um, you know, responsibility, you feel that you have to be responsible once you, once you are aware of something. So uh, she told me the other day that, you know, once something is in your realm of consciousness, if you are going to, um, uh, you can either be responsible with that or irresponsible. And by being responsible, you're acknowledging and acting on that. By being irresponsible, you are, you are you know, denying that and not really doing anything in, in your own day-to-day uh, -day life to, to try to combat what's, what's happening. So I love that you're speaking about that and from your personal perspective as well. Um, if folks are listening right now, what can they do starting right now if they are overwhelmed with this idea of you know, starting little by little? Uh, what is something that they can do in their personal lives starting now? Um, so actually, people may, may, may not realize this, but one of the biggest things you have control over, and in fact, you just mentioned this, Mariella, is, is actually what you eat. And um, one of the biggest things is uh, reducing red meat consumption. So um, that can have a very, very significant impact. Uh, uh, unfortunately, cattle um, and actually even dairy, and I, I have to confess, I'm not a vegetarian. I, 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 my, my husband is, but I am not. Um, uh, but my, even my husband, we like to eat dairy and cheese, but we're just becoming more conscious around sort of just eating less of it. Um, and, you know, I, I remember long ago looking at this, once reading this academic study that uh, said that if, if all Americans just switched one day a week, one day a week from red meat to chicken, that would offset more emissions than all of the greenhouse gas emissions we put out from transporting food into the, around the US. So just that one day a week shift is, can have such a big impact just because red meat is just so bad for um, greenhouse gas emissions. So that's something we have immediate control over is, is, is just shift in our diet. And also that also relates to dairy, um, unfortunately. So even if you're a vegetarian, um, red meat is worse, but dairy is also quite significant. Um, the other thing that, uh, you know, there's other small, you know, it just, again, like I, I feel like sometimes you know, like our, we are focused on climate change, but I think any work in sustainability is equally important. And so I'll give you another example. And again, if you have kids and they are in school, just find a way to engage with the kids and the teachers. The teachers will love you for it. Like if you, if you, well, hopefully, sometimes teachers don't like it, but most teachers would be quite happy if you want to sort of do some activity with the kids. Um, and I'll tell you one thing that we were doing in Hawaii and I worked in schools for a while. Um, and uh, we used to take these kids on beach cleanup. So actually we have this unfortunate situation here because we're set of islands and uh, there's just so much plastic waste in the ocean. And there are certain places on the island where because of the currents, it really piles up. And um, it's not, you know, some of it is really big waste, but most of it is these tiny, 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 tiny pieces of plastic that mingle with the sand. And we take the kids to do this thing called beach cleanup. And it is actually a completely useless activity in terms of actually having an impact. Because imagine trying to like, pick up all these tiny pieces of plastic on, on a beach, right? Like how, how far can you get? But the awareness, the awareness that that creates, and we have teenagers who cry, who cry when they see this. And like, you know that they are just so motivated now to do something more. And that is the starting point. That is just the starting point for engagement. And we have high schoolers who get so interested in this topic. They start like turning up in the state capital and like, talking to their representatives. I mean, we're talking teenagers, right? Who get really, really motivated to act when they see and they experience and they see how tough it is to 
try to figure, you know, solve this problem. So just start, start where you're at, start in your home. If you live in a, in a kind of a, you know, building society, like say in India, people live in building societies, start thinking, what can we do in our building society? But my, my mother lives in a, in a building society. In, that means it's like a collection of buildings in India that kind of, you know, are, are in sort of uh, kind of almost a gated community, semi-gated because the gate is always open. Um, they, uh, they started doing separation of waste at source just because one person was really motivated and wanted to get this going. Um, and then they also started rainwater harvesting. So there's a chronic water shortage in my parents' city every summer. And, you know, they have to ship the water in from elsewhere and it's expensive and all these tankers come in. And so in that building, they decided that they could actually just do rainwater harvesting off their roofs in the monsoon and recharge the groundwater. And many societies in my in that city now are doing this. And because many of them are doing this, it's actually really helping to recharge the groundwater. So again, it's just in where my mother lives, just, you know, the neighbors, they kind of collectively decided to do this. So lots of things you can do just in your personal choices. If you have money um, and you're going to buy, a, you know, your, your, and you have a house with a roof, you could decide to put a solar panel on. Um, there are some places where it's actually cheaper to go solar, depending on where you live, because the government has set up the right incentives. Solar water heating is like a no brainer. It's all cheaper almost anywhere, but you have to live in a house, own your house with this, those limitations, of course. You know, many people in the US, at least, they buy new cars pretty often. <laughs> and so your next car, can it be an electric car? Um, so there's lots of choices you can make. You can make choices as a consumer. You can make choices as a member of your family and your community. And you can make choices in your workplace. So can you at have a conversation? Can you have one conversation in your workplace? Just start with a colleague or over lunch? Can you have a brown bag conversation? Maybe bring in a few more people. Is there a boss you can start talking to about what you can be doing in your workplace? So just start with the concept this, you know, stuff you can do in your workplace. And then there's stuff you can do as a citizen, which means you can lobby, you can get involved in organizations that are trying to lobby government. You can support them with your skills. Um, you can volunteer. So there's all these different ways in your personal life, in your family choices, in your community, in your workplace, with your kids' schools, with organizations that you can volunteer for, do advocacy for, all these ways in which you can have an impact right now. Beautiful. Thank you so much for diving deep into that uh, question. I know that I, I, I added on to this question on the screen, but I think it's important for, for us to take responsibility and to actually see that there's fruit uh, out of that labor that comes out of that. So automatically I think, okay, well, you took the, you all are doing the beach cleanups, um, you know, and what happens with the societies and where your mom lives, that's creating community. And maybe you would, would not speak to those people otherwise, but you're, you know, starting to engage offline. Um, and I know we've got a question coming up about tech soon. Um, I don't know if it's this one, but no, it's not. So soon we'll talk about tech and the responsibility that tech has. But let's start with this question here. Is there a big myth about climate change that you'd like to debunk? I know you spoke a little before about one uh, myth, but is there any other? Uh, are there any uh, other? You know, so I, 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 think, I think more than a myth. Yeah, it's a, there's a big myth. And I think I unfortunately believe this myth for a long time. And I completely changed my mind. And, and one of that was that actually we have to wait for government and policy to do the right thing. And I am like... That's just so wrong in so many ways, partly because if we do that, we're all doomed, right? I mean, luckily, you know, a lot of governments are finally getting on board. So every day we see like a new country committing to a clean 
a, you know, and they call it sort of net zero goal, which is kind of bringing emissions down to net zero. Uh, but even if you add up all the commitments that already exist, we're still not going to get into the safe, the safe temperature range. We're not going to keep it in the safe temperature range. Um, a lot of it is going to a huge amount of it because the U.S. Uh, consumes, you know, is such a big emitter of greenhouse gases that even if like literally the rest of the world is is right on target, if the U.S. is not on target, like we're still basically in, in bad shape. Um, and you know, even there's a lot of hope now by you know Biden administration, etc. But reality is, it's going to be a really tough. A tough thing even for the Biden ad administration to pull off. Everything has to line up in the U.S. You have to get, you know, support of the Senate, the Congress. Everything has to line up. Who knows? Is that going to happen? How soon is it going to happen? To, at what scale is it going to happen? So if we sit around waiting for policy, like we are in big trouble. And that to me is a big myth. And it's it's a it's a myth that's very very strong in the expert communities. Um, you know, people who do all this technical economic analysis and people who kind of write policy papers, et cetera. I think it's totally wrongheaded. I mean, private sector can do a huge amount. And in fact, we see a lot of that um, kind of happening already. We can see a lot of stuff coming out of the private sector. Communities can do a huge amount. Um, you know, local government actually is the one place which is very interesting. Uh, so people aren't aware, but like really, if there's a government kind of sector or actor that's really furthest along on climate action, it's city governments. So even while a lot, and this is around the world, we see city governments taking actions. So um, maybe a little bit more in the US and Europe, but um, definitely city government, it's also a place where you as an individual might know somebody or be, be able to connect better because it's just your local government. So that's one big myth It's like, let's not wait for policy. We can all play a part. Absolutely. Thank you so much for debunking that myth. Um, I totally agree with you. I have so many things that I could say about that. Um, but again, I, I want to give chance uh, for us to get to these nice questions. Also, I just would like to highlight, though, that, you know, you're you're speaking of different parts of the world. But again, it's a global, you know, we live on the same planet. So what one country does essentially affects the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, there is a direct correlation, for example, with, and the reason I know about this more than, uh, than maybe I did when, when I was back in the States, is because I'm right next to Brazil and the rainforest is there. And you realize that they're cutting down so many trees so that people can farm cattle, so that people can eat meat. Back to your point, if you cut red meat down, maybe we could save some of the rainforest, for example. Yes. Um, but you don't make these connections because you just go to the grocery store and you get your, you know, your, your, your we are, we are not challenging ourselves, I would, I would also argue, to learn more about the implications. Um, and there's also um, something that I would like to maybe spread to people who are listening now. Um, the, the, aid, the, the uh, old adage that the consumer is always right. Well, if we're always right, let's start to be conscious consumers so that policy and business changes based on what we want to purchase and buy. Um, so I, I love that you are speaking about policy and not waiting on policy and, you know, actually, inviting policy to change by changing first ourselves and then with our local communities. So thank you so much, Kamal, for bringing that up to our awareness. All right, so what is the role of technology in climate change? Um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to sort of interpret this as kind of climate action, like how, do, how can technology help? So we, we can't get there without technology, okay? Like we, we have, to, because you know, we're talking about technologies, fossil fuel burning technologies and switching over. We're talking even, even I would say, um, 
you know, to some extent in agricultural systems, we're talking about technology. We're definitely talking about technology in manufacturing. So all the all the sectors that literally have to shift um, industry, et cetera, we, it's, it's really all, it's, you know, hugely about shifting the technologies that we're using. So we have to go from power plants that burn oil and, you know, coal and oil and gas to solar panels and wind farms and batteries. We have to go from internal combustion engine to electric vehicles. We have to go from, you know, heavy industry that depends heavily on burning coal, like say steel industry, et cetera, to uh, industry that's actually, you know, doing this in a sustainable way, renewable energy, et cetera. Um, we, we have to change our building technologies entirely. So there's a lot of amazing stuff around green buildings. Like we can now design buildings to be almost, to be basically car net carbon zero buildings. So they literally one building can be designed in a way that it's, there's no emissions from that building. So um, we have the technologies that there's no question. And then, uh, you know, another thing about technology and I'll mention this here, and I think there's another question on it is actually the role of software. And like kind of, you know, just the advances in data sciences and computing that's enabling us to actually do this better, cheaper, these transitions. So for example, when we're talking about transitioning our entire energy system to clean energy, uh, we face this challenge that, you know, with the traditional power plant, like you've got an engineer who can literally switch it on and off based on what is happening with demand for electricity over the day. But with solar and wind, we are dependent on natural resources that, you know, we can predict to some extent, but we can't predict 100%. So sometimes the sun shines and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the wind blows and sometimes it doesn't. And so it becomes, it's, it's, it's a new challenge. Like how do you provide electricity moment by moment and keep the prices down, um, you know, fairly cheap, keep it reasonably priced while still depending on entirely intermittent resources? So of course you need storage, you need batteries, um, but um, so there's this whole move now towards the smart grid. And so all of that is technology. It's about having the right types of technology. The utility of the future is going to look more like a tech company where you're really, it's all about managing these resources and having these smart technologies in place. So literally your washing machine at home is through the wires listening to what the sun is doing and your, your clothes washer comes on in response to a message that, hey, now's a good time because we've got extra solar resources on the grid. And all of that is technology enabled. Um, and so there's worlds upon worlds of such applications. Um, and so, yep, technology critically important, can't get there without it. And luckily we have the technologies, you know, we, we don't have to wait for them. They're in here and now we have all the technologies we need right now at a reasonable price. There was a study recently by the International IRENA, which is like the International Renewable Energy Agency. Um, and they said that like 50% of the solar installations that are going in now are, oh, sorry, the solar installations that are going in now globally are cheaper than 50% of the coal, like electricity from coal around the world. So people traditionally think of coal as the cheapest. It's just no longer true. Like literally solar is cheaper than coal in so many places. So we are there with the technology. We're even there on the costs. So we can't say we don't have what we need. So what is keeping us from making the, the full transition in your opinion? Uh, there's two things I think, like it's, it's hard to shift big systems. And so part of it is like retraining. So for example, if you're an engineer who works in a utility, you've been trained in a certain way. And it's, this is like terrifying because your job is still to like keep the electricity on all the time, but 
you don't understand this new system you've not been trained you don't have the technologies yet like it, so there's a big responsibility on the people who are being like tasked with this so one has to sort of have some sympathy there and so you know that at that at that level it's like a real challenge like people need new training we need like we need people who understand how to use these systems how to deploy them etc um, on the but there's a like a less charitable not charitable but there's there's kind of a there's an issue of vested interests so there's still you know too much money to be made in doing the wrong thing so until that continues to be the case until our economic systems and our incentives are set up so that people continue to get enriched by making choices that are unsustainable um you know we're going to struggle i mean and 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 this plays out it's not just because that business is operating that way but that business a fossil fuel company has so much power over your government oh my god they pay okay here i live in hawaii okay in hawaii we have a mandate we were the first state in the us to pass a law requiring that we meet 100% of our electricity from clean energy sources by 2045 three years before california before anybody else we had passed that law we still cannot get like you know simple changes in place like because of the lobbying power of the fossil fuel industry so we can't even mandate that all new houses have say solar water heaters because the lobbying power of the um, gas industry is so strong that they derail that over and over so even in a state where at the high level we actually have the right policy when it comes to the practical aspects of enabling this and doing it easily it becomes a real challenge it's because the companies with money invested interest in maintaining the status quo have a lot of power over the political system as well so that's kind of like one of the big challenges i couldn't agree more and i i share this book as much as i can if you've been on this chat and you've seen me share this book apologies uh sacred economics by charles einstein and he speaks exactly about what you're speaking about um and just about well for example he speaks about the commons um and how essentially air land uh water it's a common resource it, it belongs to no one um i would argue even that you know all natural resources don't belong to anyone but the way that we have built together collectively over time the economy you know it gives so much power to these corporations to then dictate and and essentially scare us into you know not making the more sustainable choice um which means i guess you have to be a little radical in the way you decide to set things up in your home how can if someone is afraid cuz you know that word of being radical and just saying like actually i prefer to have a solar cooker uh versus you know this uh gas or electric stove um how can someone right now um find more courage to you know i don't want to say fight against that but to act in a way that is more sustainable even though everything around them in their in their you know city or in their community is 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 trying to force feed them uh something that is not healthy you know uh, this is an extremely important question and you know i think there's a question later on and i'm going to jump ahead and it has to do with the fact that why do these sustainable things cost more and it comes back to this fact that it's not that this is sustainable things cost more it's that we've set up an economic system that values the wrong things so you know uh, you know we, we've set up an economic system that puts no value on the resources on which we depend um and it it's so perverse in so many ways so for example say in indian cities right now indian cities are choking with air pollution right absolutely choking but if your if your child gets asthma and has to skip school and you you know it and you have to take your child to the doctor and spend money that's actually a plus in gdp right so you've actually added to economic growth because your child doesn't contribute to economic value right they're not so 
um, and you're going now to the doctor and spending money. And so that's actually like economic growth going up in your country, literally. So think how perverse our economic system is, how the way we set it up and what it is that we value and put value on. And you know, so that's the problem. And that's why the sustainable stuff seems more expensive. It's because we have artificially made other stuff cheaper. Like we are not putting a value to pollute on, on pollution. We're not saying, Pollution is a cost to all of us. We all bear this cost. So because the economic system is set up like with these huge blind spots, you know, um, and in economics, they call it externalities. Like they, these, these costs have not been incorporated into the way we do our accounting, right from personal to business to national level accounting. Um, we have a totally skewed like structure of like, you know, kind of the way the econ economy works and then for the incentives that we face as consumers when we go out to try to make these choices. Um, so I, I do think like in some ways, like people just have to sort of identify two or three things where they can manage to, to change their behavior just in terms of personal practices. Um, you know, maybe it's like once in a while you shop at your farmer's market if you have access to a farmer's market. Like even in India where my, par my parents live, um, there's somebody in the city who brings in like, um, they have a farm locally, uh, just outside the city and they, they grow uh, organic lettuce and some greens. And my mother, it's super easy. My mother just has to order it on her mobile phone and they bring it to the door. Um, and so she does that sometimes, you know, she's not super wealthy. I mean, she's upper middle class. So in India, that's kind of pretty wealthy, but like, she doesn't have a lot of spare change, but she, this is something she can afford to do. Um, they, you know, other things that, anything that you can do, like, can you, um, you know, can you start attending your neighborhood board meetings? Like if that's, if that's a thing, like if you live in the US, you live in Europe, start attending like, just like local government meetings and, and listening and paying attention. If you've got that little bit of time, get engaged in your schools just get engaged in education in your local communities. Is there something you can help set up? Is there a field trip? Is there something you can do in the schools? Um, again, so again, just comes back to those same actions that we, we talked about earlier. And I love that you're saying, you know, it starts really with your personal practice. You really, we really can't expect big change if we don't change little things within our, our own, uh, you know, way of, of living. Um, actually here in Argentina, uh, I don't know the exact, the title of the, of the new um, mandate that, that is taking effect, um, but if folks in government now are required to take um, a, it's called, the translation is sovereign food. I don't know if I'm translating that right, but so that they are aware of the implications of what, you know, agriculture does to everything in society, you know, uh, sustainability or non-sustainability or non-sustainable products and produ production and food. Um, and I was like, I just, I stood outside and I was like, yes, this is great because effectively that's going to hopefully, hopefully crossing all fingers and toes have an implication on how they uh, pass policy um, based on this requirement. So um, I don't know how that happened. I assume that it's because, you know, folks are protesting and getting together uh, different environmentalists and, and, uh, and conscious food production folks um, who are asking their, their representatives to just, you know, be more mindful uh, and not just keep the corporations at, at this altar essentially. Um, so yes, getting involved in our community is key. I would, I would definitely echo that. Uh, let's move on to this next question here. So what are the easiest changes we can make that can have big impacts? So we talked a little bit about food we choice. Kind of, yeah, we talked food a little choice. about maybe, you know, uh, joining the community. You talked about plastic as well. Is there anything else you want to speak about on this question? 
I mean, if you have a little bit of money to spare, like donate, that's like the easiest thing now, right? I mean, at least donate to an organization that you believe in that's doing good work. If, if you care about politics, like donate to, you know, do a little bit of research, find out who more pro-environmental candidates are, donate to their campaigns if there's an election coming up. Um, you know, that's almost like if you have money to spare and many people don't, especially during this pandemic. So I, I don't like to sort of highlight that as like a, you should definitely do this. Um, if you have time to spare volunteer, um, start off, you know, if you like to grow food, like, and honestly, you don't need to know anything about it to start. Um, so I, I spent some time in this amazing middle school here in Hawaii. It's called Seeks, the school for examining essential questions of sustainability. And if you have some time, I really recommend going to their website, S-E-E-Q-S, because it is an amazing school and what they're doing. It's a free school. It's a charter school. It's not private. Nobody has to pay any money for this. So, um, um, so, uh, and oh, I was very curious about like food and growing food. And I had like never grown a thing in my life, but I just got involved in their food garden program. And I just learned along with the kids, like there was a worm bin and it had collapsed. And so we all became worm doctors. Like it was me and like 12 year olds, worm doctors, like trying to figure out why did the worm bin collapse? Like, so it was all science. We were like doing science as we are trying to bring the worm bin back. You know, so um, and I learned a lot like myself, like I, I never, never had a worm bin before um, myself. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it, you know, we've got the Internet these days. Like one of the jokes is like when you if you ask high schoolers, like how they learn things they're actually interested in, they're like, actually, we look it up on YouTube. So honestly, you can look up anything on YouTube mm -hmm. um, if you're really interested. So, um, yeah, or you can come to Terra. <laughs> Yes, you know, yes. we don't have all the courses yet, but hopefully we will soon even have a course on the warm bins. Um, so we yeah, have a question. Um, and actually, I would love for you to oh. hold on Tara there. And if you want to speak more about Seeks. Uh, so someone here has written Lydia, uh, do oh. you have any organizations you would recommend? So supporting financially or just getting involved uh, with, you know, your, your time? Oh, I guess this would depend on which country you're in. Sorry, Lydia, could you, could you let us know or just type which country you're in? she's going to write there. I'm from California, oh, but living yeah. in Argentina at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, cool. Um, California. Yeah, that's a, uh, there's so many interesting organizations. So there's like the very big environmental organizations, but I'm not even sure that they necessarily need your money right now because uh, Jeff Bezos just announced he's giving like a hundred million dollars to each of these huge environmental nonprofits. So I think like, so like environmental defense fund, there are these huge big environmental nonprofits in the US, environmental defense fund, um, natural resource defense council, NRDC. Um, yep, that's right, go to your exactly, yeah. Um, so there's five organizations he's identified. I think uh, maybe World Resources Institute, they do more like research and policy stuff. Um, the one organization I am a huge fan of is uh, Friends of the Earth. Uh, they they're very they're super interesting because they're very very environmental justice oriented like and they, they pay a lot of attention to labor rights and how do we sort of get how do we solve environment and kind of equity at the same time um, and they have local chapters in ev almost every city that's and it's a kind of so it's kind of like a loose federation of organizations and so there's lots of ways to get involved just through your local chapter of uh, uh, friends of sorry not friends of the earth I'm sorry. Uh, it's Sierra Club. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Friends of the Earth is a uh, UK uh, coming out of the UK. Um, it's Sierra Club. Sorry. Um, so they they are really really good. I, I really love the Sierra Club. I think they do really awesome work all around the country. Um, but again, like I think you just like 
you might want to just start like researching like what's around you, like who's doing what around you for you for you to find ways to get for you to find ways to get engaged. So in Hawaii, we just have a lot of small organizations that even do things like stream cleanup, for example, and it's just a way to join a community. So if you start turning up regularly, you get to know more people and you get to learn more about what's going on beyond that particular stream or, you know, and it's also just nice. It's nice to do stuff in community. Usually these kinds of volunteer days are um that's actually a really good thing so to see in your in your local community if there's some organization organizing these volunteer days and so in hawaii it's a huge thing like there's not a single saturday where there isn't of course now with covid it's not happening but everything from beach cleanups to stream stream cleanups to like weeding in these like local hawaiian agricultural systems called loes um there's so much going on on weekends for people to just come volunteer. There was, I, I participated in this volunteer thing, not environmental at all, but it was like building homes for like homeless people essentially, and kind of getting together to, to kind of do this kind of work in community. So just find that one thing and that's gonna lead to other things. So if you have time, like, you know, just find out what's going on in your local community. Sometimes it's hard, but hopefully there'll be something on there. Sometimes Facebook is a really good way, like people always, put stuff in, on Facebook events, et cetera. So, yeah. Great, thank you for that, Kamal. So I just wanna also let everyone know we've got about 10 minutes left. So this time has flown by um, and it's great because we've been diving into these questions. Um, let's move on to this next question here. Uh, having crossed the point of no return in this person's opinion, should we now focus on adaptation instead of mitigation or at least only those activities that are both? Um, or do we continue to keep hope towards preventing the full crisis? I think this is actually a really important question. Um, and I would say that we should definitely be doing both, right? So because obviously we want to maintain hope and we want to keep fighting as much as we can, but also it's not like climate change is something in the future. Okay, we are already facing these absolutely crazy impacts everywhere. So our course director at Terra, this amazing woman named Lainey, she, she lives in a tiny home that she and her partner themselves built in, California and they got completely smoked out. So while she's teaching our course and running it, she actually had to flee her tiny home um, because there was so much smoke from the wildfires and she had to, they drove up the coast to Washington to stay with some friends. Um, and they've only just returned to their home months later because you know now it's winter season and hopefully the fire season's dying back. So it's affecting like everybody. It's, it's no longer a thing that's affecting those people out there. It's in everybody's communities. Um, you know, there was a New York Times article recently about sort of the scale of internal climate refugees that we might start seeing in the United States, you know, the way people are going to have to move or, you know, some place is going to become just uninhabitable because of just increasing natural disasters and sea level rise in places like Florida. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, in, in Hawaii, in Hawaii here, sea level rise is such a huge problem for us because our entire economy is tourism based. And it's based on the, having these beaches and, you know, what happens with even one meter of sea level rise, we're in, 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 in bad shape. So we have to talk about adaptation. There's no question. And I would say go beyond adaptation and think about resilience. So more and more the conversation is on how do we build resilient communities? Um, so it's not just that can we adapt, but it's like, can we actually be resilient? It, it, this is an invitation to rethink like everything from like, what does it mean to be personally resilient to what does it mean for a community to be resilient? Um, and we are extremely adaptable as human beings, okay? In, already in so many ways we have adapted. The fact that we have huge cities 
you know, Baghdad or like Saudi Arabia, those, those places are in some sense, they sh we shouldn't be there. It's too hot. And yet for generations we have adapted and we've been living there. Phoenix, Arizona, like, does that make sense that people are living in Phoenix? No. And yet there's an immense city and people have adapted to the temperature, right? I mean, it's not in great ways. We use a lot of air conditioning that uses a lot of energy, but air conditioning is an adaptation to the temperature. If we can do it with clean energy, like let's put in a lot of air conditioning. So we are very adaptable as a species. Um, so that's kind of our inherent strength. It's kind of why we've been around, you know, so successful for so long. So Absolutely. no question, we have to focus on resilience. Thank you for that. Kamal. I do have a message here that I want to flag before we uh, wrap oh, yeah, up. We've got about six more minutes. So Dipti okay. writes, I, I work in the clean energy sector. Many thanks to Kamal. Uh, but I've, no I've noticed yes. that there isn't enough of an understanding of how the mining of raw material of batteries impact forests. What advice would you have to help stop greenwashing renewables and holding them accountable? This is a very good question. And I think you've, you, you've touched on something very important. So actually I recently read about lithium mining as well and how uh, it's actually a very, very, this is what I, I, you know, one is the sort of destruction of forests but the other side of it is it's actually very water intensive but lithium is found in very dry areas. And so uh, there's actually a real issue with water resources as well around, around lithium. And then, then there's just a general question of sort of, mining as a, as a, you know, occupation and like, is it what kind of livelihoods for whom, um, you know, so uh, there's this idea, at least in sort of the fossil fuel sector, at least in sort of kind of the social theory world, this idea of the resource curse. So it's almost like the countries with these natural resources often end up like kind of almost the most cursed because you end up with these very inequitable systems. Um, and you know dictatorial regimes, etc. So I think this is a very very important question, and we absolutely should be asking it and holding companies accountable. And I'm not sure like what is the solution. I mean, maybe you know as we scale, like there might be a labeling system, or you know the kind of the same systems that we want to see everywhere. We we need the same systems to be in renewable energy. Like we need to know that this is being ethically mined, that there are some practices in place, that they are recycling the water at the mines, that there's um you know, people are making a decent livelihood that there's safety measures in place because obviously, yeah, we're gonna need these resources. That's one side. The other thing that I think we have to think about is the idea of the circular economy. So um, when I was working in solar in India and we were doing rural electrification, it was all lead acid batteries. So we're not talking lithium. We're talking simple like lead acid batteries, a little bit different from the car batteries because you need the deep cycling, but like, um, but there's this company in India, Tata BP, and they were manufacturing these batteries and we were using them. Um, but like it was literally hundred, I don't know to what extent it was recycled in the factory, but hundred percent recycling from our perspective because uh, they had a system already for recycling lead acid batteries. And so we had a system of collecting them and returning them the moment the battery died. So to what extent can we remove the pressure on the original resource by reusing and recycling and therefore completely designing the product for that because if we design the product in a way that makes it really hard to separate out the different components at the end and reuse them then it's just going to end up junked and we're going to go back and mine some more but if if we begin to think circular economy in all of our production systems you know can we recycle even like 90 percent can we start with like 50 percent and move up to 90%, like how much of this stuff can we take back and reuse and recycle? And more and more, I think we have to start thinking that way for all our production systems. And there's so much interest around circular economy. We have somebody coming online 
Uh, actually, we have somebody designing a circular economy course for us right now. Again, it's one of our students and he's finding an expert to partner with. Uh, and uh, he comes actually from a completely different background. His background is an entrepreneur in like the digital marketing world. And he's become very, very concerned with consumerism. And you know, he's, he's finding an expert to teach a circular economy course for us. Um, and so it's a really good question. So thanks for asking that, Dipti. Absolutely. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, so we've got just a few more minutes left. Uh, I would just love to pass the mic uh, back to you, Kamal, uh, and so that you can leave us with some food for thought, wrap up this, this session, this awesome session that we've had. Uh, the hour has flown by so quickly. Can you leave us with some food for thought um, that will encourage us, that will keep us you know, mindful um, and responsible, especially during these crazy times uh, that we're experiencing around the globe? And then let us know how we can find you and support you once we finish this chat. Fantastic. Um, I'll be happy to do that. So I, I think you mentioned a really important thing. I think it's important to acknowledge this time that we're in. Very important. And I wish actually I'd started with that because this is a very tough time. A lot of people have lost jobs. Even if you haven't lost your job, it's extremely stressful. You might have children at home. I know I have a nine-year-old at home who's on Zoom school right now. And I don't know if he's actually on Zoom school or watching TV. I mean, I, you know, um, so um, we, it's just a really tough time. So be kind to yourself, like start, you know, don't kind of, I would say there's a lot of environmental guilt and let's not start there, right? Like we, we are all, the very fact that you're paying attention, that you're listening, okay, that is like already kind of where you need to be right now. So, you are where you need to be right now. So just be kind to yourself, be forgiving, be kind to your family. Just start with that. Cause you know, to some extent our like, you know, disrespect of the, earth, the way we treat the earth is just a function of how we treat each other as well. It's, it's all, it, it stems from our fears and our anxieties and kind of, you know, thinking that we need to make a lot of money because we're so anxious or we're insecure. We feel insecure. Like, so it's these kinds of emotions that drive like, in some sense, everything that we're seeing. So, so just start with like giving yourself some space and you're where you need to be. And, you know, that's one side of it. The second side of it, I would say is like, once you join a community and find something meaningful to do, it's very empowering. And it's actually a way out of the, the funk. So if you can find that one thing, you know, in your local community or wherever you're at or in your kid's school or whatever, like it's very, it's a good feeling. Um, and so that's another reason to do it. Like it feels nice. It's, it's fun. It's, you've got other people who have similar values to you. You've now found a community where as humans, we're not meant to do anything really alone. We're meant to do things with others. So that's the reason to get started on something. It's actually, it feels good. Like we need more of that right now. You yes, know? we need so, <laughs> Yeah. So. Yeah, um, you know, we've got a pretty good community at Terra. We maintain a Slack community. Our alumni are on it. Our current students are on it. It's pretty active. So, and so if you have, yeah, and if you have any questions, you can always just email me. I'm just putting my email address in the chat. Oh, wait, that's wrong. I'm sorry. I wrote my own email address wrong. <laughs> no worries. Just Actually, the, the, folks, the, the folks who have yeah. signed up for this chat, they're going to get a rewatch email. Um, and then we'll put all of the resources that you, uh, you know, are saying right now in that email so they can access it uh, with the link there. Okay. So actually, um, yeah, yeah, I think the best is actually our community manager. Uh, yeah, I'll share that with you later. Okay. Kind of, she might good. be like the, the best starting point as just kind of our community manager. But yeah, okay. 
Awesome. So yeah. Thank you so thank much, you. Kamal. Thank you for your words yeah. of wisdom, your food for thought. Um, thank you for starting this beautiful organization that is, you know, definitely challenging a lot of minds and, and will and is already making an, a beautiful impact. I'm going to do some more research as as well and see how I can get involved. So thank you for spending time with us. Thank you everyone who's joined us for this past hour. Um, and find joy in these crazy times. It starts with yourself, as Kamal says. So thank you so much, everyone. We'll see you on the next chat. Thank you so much. And thank you, Mariela. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.